hello and uh, welcome to this uh, event to discuss governance of the future energy market. I'm Oli Bartram, Senior Economist at the Institute for Government and will be uh, chairing today. We are delighted to be holding this event in partnership with Cadent Gas, uh, the largest gas distribution company in the country, delivering gas to over 11 million homes and businesses. So the context for this event is that the energy system needs to undergo a process of rapid and transformative change if we are going to meet the government's twin ambitions of decarbonising by 2035 and delivering energy security. Decarbonisation of the energy system is critical for meeting the government's other net zero objectives. Failing to ramp up the production of clean energy would place limits on the rollout of other electrified processes such as electric vehicles or heat pumps. And this transformation of the energy system is likely to require evolution in the rules and institutions that govern it. So government as a whole needs to rapidly develop new capabilities and ensure that its institutions are geared up uh, to be able to do everything it needs uh, to achieve change. We'll be discussing that wider transformation in uh, the governance of the energy system today, uh, but with a particular focus uh, on one element of uh, the government's current plans, which is uh, its plan to uh, create a future system operator, a public corporation, uh, it, but independent of government, with responsibilities across the whole energy system uh, to translate policy into strategy. So I'm delighted to be joined by an excellent panel uh, to discuss these issues. Uh, so to my left is Dr. Tony Balance, Chief Strategy and Regulation Officer at Cadent Gas. Responsible for Cadent's decarbonisation strategy, he has extensive experience in regulation, having previously held similar roles at Seven Trent and Offwatt. Uh, on the far left is Josh Buckland, uh, partner at Flint Global, uh, who leads their work on energy, climate and sustainability. Uh, Josh also previously held a string of high profile roles in government on energy, including as advisor to uh, the Bay Secretary of State uh, and also advising on policy in number 10 in the Treasury. Uh, to my far right is Colm Murphy, Head of Transformation at uh, National Grid ESO. So uh, for a bit of context, National Grid ESO will become uh, the new future system operator uh, and in his role uh, is responsible for the design and delivery of the regulatory framework, new industry roles, capabilities and the operating model for the FSO. Uh, and to my immediate right is Dara Weiss, uh, Deputy Chief Executive at Energy UK. She's an expert in energy consumer issues and the energy transition and previously led Citizens Advice work on net zero. So. We will be uh, tweeting from IFG events using the uh, hashtag IFGCon23 and CPC23. So please follow and tweet along. Uh, I'm going to uh, ask the panelists some opening questions. We'll have a bit of chaired Q&A. And then uh, I, I hope that all of you have lots of questions uh, to put to the panel uh, <laughs> in the Q&A after. Um, so, I'm going to kick off uh, with a question to Josh uh, to sort of set the scene a little bit here, uh, sort of wider context for changes in energy market regulation and the FSO. 
Um, so I wondered if you could talk about how critical decarbonisation of the energy system is, uh, what the government's strategy is for achieving that and our progress so far. Thanks, Ollie. Good to see everyone this morning. Um, so the decarbonisation of the energy system is absolutely vital to both the net zero transition overall, as well as the economic and social benefits that should flow from that. Kind of very simply, we get 80% of our energy supply from fossil fuels broadly in the UK. That number is unchanged over the last 15 years, more or less, apart from obviously some significant increases in low carbon power. Um, and critically, that number needs to change quite fundamentally through till 2035. If you get, if you look at the numbers, we need to deliver according to the government's targets that the Prime Minister said he's committed to, a 68% reduction in emissions by 2030 and a 78% reduction by 2035. And that can only happen if the core bit of how we actually supply energy to all of the economic sectors across the country changes quite fundamentally in that period. And ultimately, the you start with the energy system and then you build out. We've already seen that when it comes to transport. We're seeing that in other sectors. And critically, at the moment, the core energy system transition is just beginning. And we're going to see something quite fundamental, hopefully, in the next 10 to 15 years. How's government doing on it? That's kind of an interesting question, I suppose. We all know the government's done very well when it comes to power sector decarbonisation. We're getting around 50% of our power from renewable sources now, a real fundamental change. And when I was in government, we were debating whether offshore wind would be 140 or 150 pounds a megawatt hour. It's now around about 40, 50. Well, maybe for now, maybe it's getting up, Dara. You can tell us more about that later. But ultimately, the cost <laughs> of renewable power has fallen dramatically. And actually, we started to really see that transition quite fundamentally. The issue is when you go beyond that and you look at actually government's track record when it comes to wider decarbonisation. And the PM was absolutely right two weeks or so ago to talk about honesty and talk about the need to have a serious conversation with the public around what the net zero transition means. And when it comes to the energy transition, it's not just about power. It's also about heating. It's about how we get around. It's about how industry is powered. It's about our relationships with the rest of the world and how we trade. And that is where the Prime Minister hasn't necessarily had the same level of honesty at this stage because they, those are the sectors where we've actually made very little progress thus far. Um, and then critically, if the political debate around the net zero agenda becomes more divisive and difficult, it's going to be harder and harder to create the policy changes that are necessary to really make progress in the areas that impact the consumer most directly. And that's where I think and I, I, I've got strong views on governance, who we please know, Ollie, because um, it's something that I've banged on about in government a lot, and I'm happy to give you some views on that. But that's where governance is so critical, because at the moment we have a set of organisations and institutions that are looking at different sectors in a relatively siloed way, whether that be governing the electricity system, governing the gas system, an issue where there is a huge amount of crossover, but that institutional structure hasn't yet worked, whether it's looking at the consumer transition opposed to the upstream transition. Again, the institutional framework doesn't allow government or the regulator to do that in a coherent way. So that's where governance becomes so critical for me. It's about trying to move away from conversation solely on power sector decarbonisation through to energy system decarbonisation. And hopefully we'll get into some of that today. Excellent. Thanks very much, Josh. Uh, so I want to come to you next, Dara, uh, to talk a little bit about, well, just expanding on what where Josh was going there on on the questions around governance. And from an industry's perspective, uh, what do you need in terms of changes in governance uh, to help support uh, net zero transition? Thanks, Ollie. Um... And welcome to everyone coming in. <laughs> so nice that the room's filling up and thanks for waiting in the rain. <laughs> uh, so um, it's a good question and I'll try not to repeat anything Josh said. Um, I think in the UK we should be really proud of our progress to date when it comes to reducing carbon emissions. They've reduced by almost half since 1990. The economy's grown by 75%. 
The UK is home to the four largest offshore wind farms, first civil nuclear power station. We do punch above our weight, but what we need to do is maintain that kind of position. And unfortunately, I think we're sort of falling behind when it comes to the global progress being made in this space. So I think that's the first main point is that actually we, we do, we've done quite well. And one of the things I think, one of the reasons we're falling behind is because of our um, our governance and our kind of some of the machinery of the way we do things. There are, there are many reasons we're falling behind, but that's that's kind of one of them. Modernizing our sort of outdated regulation and our systems is going to be crucial if we want to really unlock the potential of low carbon power generation and also low carbon flexibility services. Um, it's been really interesting for me seeing the new Secretary of State at various things over the last um, couple of days being very vocal about grid and um, the, 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 the need to update the grid and um, how grid is one of the things that she thinks about a lot. And, you know, it's, it's about recognising that we've got an ever-changing energy mix. It's about recognising that we're at this crunchy point in the transition. We need to have an honest conversation about that, um, whether that's with people, consumers, residents, citizens, but also with some of um, the actors within the system. So that's that, what's the honest conversation with industry? What's the path? What's the direction of travel? What's the honest conversation with business? Whether we're talking about manufacturing in big industry and big industri industrial users or, or smaller businesses. So this is something around the honest conversation. Um, we've had some significantly delayed market developments and improvement to the services and the system services. And that impacts on investor confidence um of the kind of the obr talked about sort of um it's going to take us 1.4 trillion pounds of investment to get to net zero 70 percent of that has to come from the private sector and um, it's really important that we are thinking about how we make sure we're attracting that investment into the uk um and delaying these these sorts of things does impact on investor confidence for low carbon and flexibility assets so i think that's really important to make sure structures work um and that they work for both, as Josh said, that sort of consumer transition and the upstream transmission. I really like that phrasing, Josh. I think that's absolutely right. Um, on specific governance changes that you asked about, Ollie, I'd say, look, if anybody anybody who works in this this market and kind of looks uh, across will we'll know that there's, there's a lot happening at the same time. And I think one of the problems is that uh, for many of us, it doesn't feel as though the, the various different conversations talk to one another um so you know you've got the better regulation uh, unit doing a big review of economic regulation you've got the review of electricity market arrangements you've got retail market reform that's pretty overdue and then a bit of a damp squib before the summer um you've got the energy bill which we really do need to get through <laughs> in order to create the fso and i'm sure we're going to hear about, more about that um the strategic policy statement that i think just needs to go further if we actually want it to deliver what we need it to deliver um, and now we've had a new spatial plan announced. All really good things in and of themselves, but how they interact with one another is going to be key to unlock value in the system, I think. Um, and this government, whenever the next general election is, it's likely that we're gonna have two big fiscal events and we've got a King's speech. So there's a huge opportunity to continue to move forward. And so I think the main message is that I just don't think that we should be stagnant in this space. Excellent, thanks very much. Uh, and, and that sets us up nicely, I think, to go to Colm to uh, talk about the FSO, what its role is going to be. And I think particularly touching on this whole systems approach that we just heard from Daryl was maybe lacking in, in how policy is developed at the moment. 
Good morning. Welcome. Thank you for your time. Um, isn't it always dull in these panels where everyone agrees? Uh, <laughs> wouldn't it be nice if I could say, no, I fundamentally disagree with everything that's just been said, but I don't, actually, sadly, um, because it's completely right. Um, you know, Josh and Dara have hit the nail on the head. Right? For our economy to decarbonise, the power system has to be the first thing to go. It has to be the first thing to decarbonise. And in order for us to decarbonise our power system, we need to get the grid right. And what's really clear and apparent is that there are gaps, gaps in our institutional frameworks and how our system and our market work at the moment. Um, and that's where the role of the FSO comes in. It can help fill and bridge some of those gaps, taking as it will, you know, if you've read the energy bill, which I'm sure you all have, it's tattooed on my soul now. Um, <laughs> there, there are basically three statutory objectives, three primary objectives for the FSO. One to ensure an economic and efficient operation of our energy system, two, to maintain security of supply, and three, to facilitate that transition to net zero. And within those, we also have to think about the consumer impacts, how we innovate, how we drive competition. There's, there's, a, lot, there's a lot there to unpack, but the thing, the fundamental thing is that we also have a duty to look across the end-to-end -end energy value chain. So by taking a whole systems approach, that's where the FSO can really help unlock and speed up that transition. So we can start to think about the trade-offs. It's no longer, um, you know, one party advocating for the thing that, it, you know, looks after their financial benefit the most. Actually, you've got an independent, expert, impartial organisation at the centre of the energy sector, able to give government advice on the right policy levers to pull or to give them a view on how the existing policy levers are performing and to help the regulator as well think about how they play their role in ensuring that we drive that forward. So I think that's that's what's really exciting about the FSO is that whole system organisation capable of, of stepping in and picking up some of the things from the Windsor report like the spatial plan being able to say you know what the answer isn't you know, there is no silver bullet it isn't all electricity it isn't all hydrogen it's it's going to be different it's going to be different for different areas but actually you've got someone there with no skin in the game able to look at it from a engineering economic net zero perspective and try and help us get to the right answer and that's that's why it's a really exciting opportunity for us as an industry excellent uh thanks very much uh i'll come to uh, dr tony balance uh, last i think for your uh, opening remarks uh, yeah no thank you it. thanks Sally. i mean it, it's interesting because the colleagues have obviously talked about decarbonizing the grid so i just i kind of wanted to nudge it forward and, and talk about it through the perspective of a gas distribution company like mine because i think decarbonizing home heating is going to be really very difficult and it's going to be a bigger challenge for the uk perhaps than anywhere else in the world given the nature of the uh, gas system the reliance that we have on gas central heating in the uk so this question of governance and how it's going to apply in the world of gas i think is, is going to be super important so i'll come on to a few comments around the kind of governance the institutional framework but i just wanted to spend a little bit of time uh, talking about the gas network and i think that's because we can't simply assume that whatever we're doing in the power sector we can just roll forward and determine ultimately what happens particularly when you've got uh, consumers at the end uh, of the network and as i say gas uh, and home heating is going to be extremely difficult to to uh, to abate you know because on an average day the energy that flows through the gas network is three times that that goes to the electricity network something that 
people often overlook and it can be seven times that on a very cold winter's day and that's because 80 percent of our homes 22 million properties are heated by gas today so that means we're going to have to remove or replace in some way 22 million gas boilers over the next um, period of time in order to deliver net zero be that through heat pumps hydrogen ready boilers or ultimately things like heat networks as well so i think this is the first time i think josh touched on this that we're going to have to have this systematic consideration of the interface between gas which was a system designed to deliver heat and the electricity sector which frankly wasn't a sector that would came about to deliver the load that is required to heat so we're going to have to really step into that and that will mean that decarbonizing heating is so hard and therefore the governance uh, and regulatory institutions that sit around that by definition are going to be hard to kind of define how that's all going to work now I think Dara touched on this, but you know, I think it's fair to say that the changes we're seeing are probably the most significant in the past 30 years in terms of the change to the government governance and regulatory system. And I'd also like Dara to say without such changes, the thing is not fit for purpose. It won't deliver what we want to going forward. And remember that once you know the regulatory institutions that we've developed in the UK were the envy of the world, we developed we were pioneers in RPR minus X and Rio, the CFD regime that, that's been touched upon, et cetera, et cetera. But today the problems I would argue are much bigger. You know, they require these 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 trade-offs to be considered considered and a greater role for planning that, that Colm has, has talked about. And probably different incentives, stronger incentives to deliver that multi-billions, trillions of investment that we're going to need to deliver. Um, Dara again touched on this, we've got a lot of moving parts, uh, strategy and policy statement, the new future system operator, um, not that I'm picking, there's a, there's a proposed new duty for off-gem on net zero. So you've got a lot of changes and not untypical of as in the UK, we, we add things into the hopper and say, we'll, we'll add these things and we very reluctantly take, take, things, out, uh, take things out. So. I think the first thing to say is that the FSO is a huge step forward. It's, there's going to be that real need for system coordination and planning that Colm talked about, a bit like the CEGB would, would have done you know, in, in years gone by. Um, and it is clear that what's, what's needed for the grid is that top-down planning and coordination. That's very much going to be required. But it's less clear to me that we've thought through ultimately what we're going to need to tackle the issue of decarbonizing heating. Um, and I think I'd add three things that I think we need to think through that we might need. The first, I think probably most critical, is going to have to strengthen our local planning and institutions. And, and I'm sure Colm will talk to this as well, but you know, is the FSO going to do that local area planning or is it going to be done by local authorities? And maybe we can, we can unpack that a bit. Solutions can't be imposed nationally for things as personal as people's uh, domestic heating systems in a local area. I think we're going to have, second thing is that we're going to have to build in more kind of what economists might call adaptive planning. So rather than straight lines saying we need this and need that, we're going to have to adapt as we go. And then the third thing, you know, I think we're going to need to initiate more kind of net zero demonstrations. So taking different technologies, putting them on demonstration, letting 
consumers and the general public learn about different technological solutions rather than it's a bit of a hobby horse putting hydrogen on trial to say is hydrogen going to be a thing or not uh, and I think within those three things we're going to have to really uh, be cognizant of co consumer choice in that something that we can't overlook just to, to wrap up I think we're also going to need to look at the underlying regulatory framework uh, and by that, I mean the way in which Ofgem regulates. And I think there are three areas where regulation, and it probably pertains to Ofgem, but other um, uh, uh, economic regulators. First thing, it needs to be less bureaucratic and complex. We've grown up with something that has become increasingly burdensome, and I'm sure doesn't create the right incentive structure that we need. Second, I think regulation needs to have a reset and be much more long term in its focus and less politicized and not getting caught up in the politics of the day. And third, I think we need to be more specific about what we want, looking at the duties. And I think that's incumbent on government to ultimately define what it wants from regulation and then define the duties accordingly. So to conclude, I think the FSO is a big step forward. The changes we're making to the governance, the regulatory uh, framework are good and to be welcomed. Uh, but I think we're going to need something more to tackle things like domestic heating uh, and probably a simpler, uh, more fit for purpose regulatory framework with the consideration of things like um, rate of return type regulation becoming more of the norm than the price cap regulation that we've seen today. I'll pause there. Thank you. Excellent. Thanks very much, Tony. So there's plenty uh, to get into there. Uh, I'm going to do a round of uh, questions myself with the panel, but please do get thinking uh, for your own questions. We'll, we'll we'll come to you soon. So, Josh, if I can come back to you um, with a entirely governance question. Um, I think we've heard, perhaps it's fair to say, quite a lot of optimism about what the FSO, what changes in regulation, governance will be able to deliver. Uh, do you do you share that optimism? Do you think there are issues left unresolved? What what are you what are the main questions for government when it comes to this issue at the moment? Yeah, I, I kind of don't disagree with the creation of it. I think kind of maybe to try and create a little bit of edge in the panel. Maybe the, <laughs> kind of the, the there is to an extent a danger with the FSO, and the danger as I see it is that everyone thinks it's their silver bullet. So if I can't build a transmission line in Scotland the FSO will demand it gets built so I can build it. If I can't get a, a decision on a hydrogen trial, it's okay because the FSO will demand it happens and therefore it will it'll proceed. I think there is a genuine view that the FSO creation depoliticizes what is going to be a very difficult transition and puts an enormous amount of pressure on a relatively small organization at the center of the system to solve all those big strategic questions, a lot of which are political or their regulatory, as you've implied, Tony. And I think there is a slight danger that we are putting a lot on the FSO to try and resolve, which is ultimately a matter either for the government or alternatively a bigger question around societal transformation. So it doesn't mean to say that the FSO is not the right issue, but it means you have to do a shed load outside of the FSO transition to actually make it, make it a success. And part of that is definitely regulatory reform. I know lots of people have talked about Liz Truss um, over the last couple of days, but one of the things she did do when I was in government was push this idea around a single utility regulator. I'm not a huge fan of the idea, but you can see where there is some sense, which is you've got a big societal transformation happening on energy. Why are you not connecting that to what you're doing on water, what you're doing on transport, all these sort of big societal questions on regulatory reform come back to the regulatory structure. So there's a big question there around regulatory duties, which I think, to be honest, go beyond just how you set a price control. It's how yeah. you structure the overall governance framework, of which the FSO is just a customer of that regulatory framework rather than the decider. 
The other thing which I really struggle with with the FSO in its current kind of incarnation and how it's going to develop over time is how you solve the national and regional and local question. I think the local energy planning piece is definitely an important <coughs> element, but obviously what we're going to see a lot of is significant challenges on the distribution networks um, as we try to electrify transport and obviously do a lot of electrification on the heat side. And there's some good numbers out there that you're going to need to upgrade 30% of distribution networks for EVs, probably the same again, and obviously some crossover for heat. And at the moment, the FSO doesn't have a kind of deciding voice within that. And there's a question around how you transition the DNOs to be more strategic and thoughtful about those upgrades and avoid a situation where the grid at a distribution level becomes a constraint. And if you've just got a national body, there's a danger that that kind of regional local discussion doesn't really happen. So for me, there's a big question around how the FSO framework evolves over time and broader reforms, obviously, to the DNO, DNO framework matter. The final thing I would say, and this is maybe um, uh, kind of, again, slightly controversial for this conference, is international. We're not going to get to a fully decarbonized power sector without a shed load more interconnection and thinking quite carefully about how we electrify and share energy across the North Sea. And at the moment, there is no coherent conversation happening around how that is going to evolve and critically what the FSO's role within that kind of institutional framework will be, regulatory cooperation discussion with our European partners, as well as also a serious conversation about how you do shared projects. And again, that maybe is a question not for the FSO, but a question for government. Excellent, thanks. Uh, Tom, can I come to you specifically on the question of um, the FSO's role in uh, local planning uh, for the energy market as well as national, but uh, touching on what Josh just, Josh just said there. Yeah, sure, thank you. Um, I, th I think it's it's really important to note that there are no there are no silver bullets, right? <laughs> Absolutely not, and the FSO cannot solve everything, and it's an, an issue that we're acutely aware of at the moment is that level of expectation on the new organization and that we kill this thing before we even before we even get it off the ground. And we're being really thoughtful about that. I mean, it's pretty clear what our rules are on day one. The FSO is designed to solve issues at the transmission level. So it will take everything that the ESO does today. So it's really important that we're very thoughtful and careful through the transition to make sure that all the great stuff that happens on the electricity network still continues to happen. And then we're going to take on a new gas planning license. But again, that's at a transmission level. So we will be responsible for the strategic long-term planning of the gas network, um, of forecasting gas demand, and also thinking about gas market strategy at the transmission level. We'll also take on roles for resilience across the whole energy system, as well as that, that advisory role that I talked about earlier. That's not... You know, that's not really the, the crux, though, of what the FSO is about. When you take those things and put them together, that's when the magic happens. It's about taking a whole system approach. It's about an organization capable of looking across vectors and trying to make that whole system trade off and plan. That doesn't solve the distribution challenge that, that Josh laid out. And that's why Ofgem are consulting on a regional system planner, um, a new role, a new institution potentially, and I think it's time, it's, it's the right time for us to have that conversation. I think what the FSO does at a national level, we need at a local and regional level as well. We need someone, um, some entity that can help think about the trade-off on a whole system basis. So the, the, the GDNs, the DNOs, they do a fantastic job. If I think about it and look at the level of engagement that they've done with local communities on, on, on issues, um, they, they're really, really stepped up in that space. But I think there is a requirement for someone to take a coordinating role, to be able to take the, the network plans on the, on, the, on the electricity side, on the gas side, and try and think about what does a holistic whole system plan look like? What are the, the trade-offs there? You know, where is electrification the right answer? 
where is it where is where's hydrogen the right answer how do we think about those balances and i think that's where that regional system planner role will be will be really important and at the fso we're already thinking or as we become the fso at the eso we're already thinking about how do we interact with that entity and if it is you know if it is the the fso that that becomes the regional system planner, we will be will be gearing up to do that. But in any event, we think that is a really important role and one that we will want to make sure that um, the FSO's kind of national kind of top down view is able to align and be coherent and consistent with a bottom up view that really respects both local communities, democratic accountability, consumer choice, and helps to build that kind of bottom up local area and make sure that the two things are congruent and, and, and align. Excellent. Thanks very much, Tom. Um, Dara. Uh, do you have any reflections on what you've just heard from Colm and Josh? Uh, and something else I think we should pick up is on, uh, I guess, how uh, responsibilities are split up between FSO and government in particular, and I guess uh, what is the sort of right balance of responsibilities between government and the FSO in making the big sort of strategic choices about the grid? That's a really small question. I think, I think, listen, I think Colm um, made some really good points. Uh, you know, the reality is, is in energy, as in most policy issues right across government, uh, you have to think quite carefully about cost subsidy and you have to think quite carefully about where costs land and who ends up paying who ends up subsidising who else because you know ultimately all of these changes we all pay for them either, either as taxpayers or as energy bill payers right and so we have to be quite thoughtful about both efficiency and long-term investment because that balance between current and future customers is going to be so important as we talk about the transition and as we make progress through the energy transition and um, so I think there's, the, there's something around that kind of that thoughtful piece is so important because of that balance. And it's not just the geographical, it's about current and future, it's about um, people who can least afford it, people who can um, afford to go further or go first. So there's lots of, lots of different things that we're always balancing. And it's that, to me, the point around, um, you know, how you make the most of local diversity whilst trying to ensure some national equity is a big, big question for the energy system right now as we as we move forward so that's and it's a live conversation right across the system um and there are things that regulators can do you know i would argue that rio actually had a huge impact on that customer conversation um you know having that the parameters in in the rio 2 um price control made a huge difference to the efforts that um, network operators and i'm sure tony can yeah. talk about some more but made a huge difference to that conversation with real people and real businesses and real users of energy locally so i think there is more that can be done in that frame so i think that you're absolutely right on that in terms of the balance between government and the fso i mean I think from the industry perspective, what we really want is some really basic stuff like quite a lot of clarity mm -hmm. and transparency, foresight and a kind of heads up when things are going to happen. I think the reality is, is there's a lot of balls in the air right now. Um, we can't afford to drop any of them, but we're also quite keen to see decision making in progress. So, you know, really short order and it's really easy to deliver. Um, but. Being serious though, I think there is something about 
at Energy UK, we represent generators, we represent retail suppliers, we represent companies that operate right across the system, whether that's low carbon flex aggregation, EV smart charger manufacturers, heat pumps, you know, they're um, boiler manufacturers. We represent lots of different um, actors in the energy system. And all of them have to interact with the different parts of the system. And I think that's what it comes down to, is mm. the fact that there's a huge diversity of business model, and there's a huge diversity of capability amongst that business model. So it's about making sure that as we make progress, there is enough transparency and access that industry can properly engage at the right points. Great, thanks very much. I'll come to you, Tony, and then if uh, anyone has any questions, put your hand up and we'll come to you. Yeah, lot, lots of good points. The, the danger with, with Josh kind of putting provocation is then we all agree with the provocation. Yes, but just a few, a, a few things. I think, you know, I tend to agree with Josh that, you know, if there's a problem, we'll give it to the FSO. And I think, you know, the, the, mm. the, the proof of the pudding will be in the eating. I think the, the, one of the key issues for the FSO, and, and Josh touched upon it, was, you know, it's decision-making powers versus producing the plan because you know when things get really expensive you know where does the government sit, sit around that and they haven't really quite let go and said right the FSA will determine the long-term investment plans and an off-gems role is to ensure that the funding flows so I think that's that's going to be a, a, a real issue is, is where does the decision-making ultimately sit Calm touched on the regional system planning stuff that is you know that is crucial um i i don't quite know what the answer is because that's tricky you know but getting that right in inverted commas is going to be really important i i talk i mentioned very briefly customer choice because i think there's this distinction between kind of planning and coordination and i'm not quite sure that local level whether we need a planner or whether we need someone to coordinate the planning that the, the networks do and that's that's not said with any kind of um, self-interest it's just the reality of where best because at the end of the day I don't think we can just simply go that street down there is going to be electrified and that street down there is going to be x y or z I think you know that is going to be very difficult it can't just be a centralized plan either nationally or a centralized plan locally or if there is a central plan you've got to take consumers and citizens along with you along along the way so it can't just be something that you you, you kind of dream up o overnight so i think I'll, I'll pause there because there's probably a heap of other questions that people want to ask excellent um great if we could come to these two here please Karen. uh there's one more i'll take it as well and if you could uh let us know who you are and where you're from uh Minosi, thanks <laughs> Thanks everyone, um, great discussion. I'm Juliette Phillips, I work for E3G, which is an independent um, climate and energy think tank. Um, I wanted to build on Dara's points about costs. Um, obviously we know the Prime Minister recently confirmed the commitment to phase out new gas boilers by 2035 with a caveat of an exemption of around 20% of homes. Um, and there's concern that this could lead to a situation where um, a decreasing number of homes are left on the gas grid. Um, I'd be interested to hear what panellists think is the right governance approach to ensure those consumers aren't saddled with all the costs of upgrade and potentially decommissioning as well. Thanks. Thank you. Ian Bucking from Gosport. Um, there's been a lot of esoteric arguments here with a lot of high-level discussions between people about 
rules and where responsibilities lie, which I'm not sure will ever go over with the general public at all. And my apologies to Colm, but five years ago, I sat in a room with a friend and we were guaranteed by a member of the national grid that the grid was up to the power, they could handle all the electric vehicles, there wasn't a problem. What the public are now seeing is that motorway services can't get connections to the grid, so they're not receiving the electricity. And at the other end of the thing, wind farms are now taking eight years to get connections. What can you ask the government to say, I need this now, and we can speed it all up and get it as we said we would five years ago? And uh, there's one more just Thank you. Great discussion. Nick Muller, Head of Climate Policy at Viva Investors. Um, it was a question for Cole mainly, but uh, welcome uh, other panelists' views as well. Um, as you said, I think one of the great benefits of the FSO is the whole system perspective it gives you, which should put you really in a knowledgeable position to understand the key barriers to infrastructure rollout, but also the key barriers to investment in the energy system. I guess what we'd be inter interested in understanding is to what extent do you feel that the FSO powers as currently worded in the energy bill will give you enough uh, room for manoeuvre to be quite upfront to government and, regula and the regulator in terms of what you see the barriers as being and what solutions might be put in place to address those barriers. Okay, excellent. Thanks very much. So we have a question uh, uh, around how, I guess, uh, bolshy the FSO can be in pointing out the, uh, the the problems that government and regulator might be making for themselves. Uh, an, an, an excellent question on how we can deliver on the promises we've made now, having, having perhaps not done so before, uh, and the question around uh, having a small number of people uh, remaining on the gas network. Colm, if I can come to you first, perhaps uh, <laughs> on that question around FSO powers, um, but also uh, on the FSO's role for delivering on the promises we've made. Sure. Um, thank you for the question. I, I will go in reverse order. So we'll take the the, the, the first, uh, the last one first. Um, so, kind of part of the part of the beauty of creating the FSO is that it creates an expert, impartial, independent organisation, not just of the energy sector and you know an infrastructure, but actually of government as well. So if you read the wording of the energy bill, we are operationally independent, not only of of you know energy interests, but also of government and the regulator as well. What they what they want, what they're looking for is that is that expert in the room able to help them think these issues through, helping them understand you know what does this decision here on a policy mean for the network, for investment, for consumers. Um, we also have the um, the the duty to balance any one of those kind of three kind of primary objectives I talked about earlier. And the leeway that's presented to the FSO and the Energy Bill is that actually it's up to us at any given time to make the call on which of those three is the most important thing to do, whether it's economic and efficient, security supply, or the net zero transition. So there's a really strong kind of um, basis in primary legislation, but also in license, also in the SBS, for the FSO to um, to be that um, be that critical friend. Um, and that's that's kind of that's where we are. I don't think it's constructive for us to be out in the out in the in the um, in the in the press, you know, bashing the government. I think what we want to do is be on the inside, helping make the decisions. Because the time now, 
it's time for action, right? To the to the next question we're going to talk about. We've got, you know, hit 2030, we've got in six, seven years, we've got to get on with building stuff. It's not about pointing out what's what's wrong, it's about coming up with solutions. I think we've got a really strong mandate to be able to do that. And we also have another within the energy bill, another duty to um, to keep under review uh, policy and tell government if it's if it's going to fall short of the of the kind of policy objectives, help them think that through so that they can they can make the call on what the right policy decision is, having had some expert independent advice on that. So I think we're set up well to be able to um, be a strong voice in the decision um, and to be able to advise and help um, move things forward. Excellent. Thanks. Second point, oh, sorry. first question, I think is probably one more around a uh, question about connections and how do we make sure that we've got the right, the right resources and uh, on the grid and that people can connect. I mean, a lot has changed in five years. The energy industry has undergone a rapid um, change. We've seen the, the number of distributed, flexible, low carbon resources wanting to join the, to connect to the grid massively increase. Um, the, the system, the network, and both the, the, the process by which someone can connect to the grid was set up for a very different time. So what we've done is we've recognized that issue and now the ESO we're working through a, a number of reforms that will help speed up the time to, to connect to the grid. So recently we ran a um, an amnesty essentially on, on projects that, um, that have a place in the grid connection queue but are not likely to ever connect and say look you can you can step out of the queue to, to help speed up the uh, the connection of other projects we're also starting to think about um, how we can consider um, things like energy storage in the in, in how it's modeled to help try and remove some of the network reinforcements that might be required so that again that can speed up the time to connect through there um, and at the moment we've just consulted on a number of changes um, to uh, to the kind of connection contracts in the queue management process to say look if you if you don't think you're going to you're, you're going to be able to connect in a reasonable time you can exit the queue if you do think you can connect well we're going to put in some milestones around when you're going to have some things in place to again ensure that projects that are ready are sped up and get to the front of the queue and get connected so this is a it's a it's a kind of a big problem um, and it's a multifaceted one we're taking a number of steps in order to do that. The key thing, though, as well, is it comes down to that kind of planning thing we talked about again. And if you look at um, if you look at the, the Windsor report and the spatial plan, you, one of the things that a big thing from that Windsor report is how do we how do we reduce the time it takes from from investment to, to getting connected to the grid? We need to have it at the minute. It's what, 10, 12 years essentially. We need to get that down to to at least you know six, seven years, and that's really going to be pretty critical and we think the role of the FSO in planning and some of the things that we've already done at the ESO whether that's the holistic network design and the accelerated um, transmission and um, schemes that came off the back of that we think there, there are models there for how we can bring government policy up front and have that as a key upfront input so that we know you know what what kind of policy needs and then we work with the regulator through the process so that actually when we get to the end of what comes out of that planning, it's actually ready to go. And then the regulator's role then becomes more about actually just making sure that these things are delivered economically and efficiently, taking again more time out of that process. So a lot to do. You just seven years. That's taken faster than two to one. Well, I think on that note, 
be good to move to uh, Dara to see if we have any more more solutions for how to sp speed things up. But also, perhaps on this question of um, uh, having a small number of people reliant on the gas mm. grid, uh, once the project's phased out. Uh, I, mean, I think Carl's right to talk about the kind of different aspects about things like you know gas with CCS, green hydrogen, battery storage, it, and in Energy UK we are. Um, Technology agnostic, and so we're you know we, we do try and kind of consider all of the different impacts across the system. Um, I I think specifically on the home heating decarbonisation that yeah I mean Juliet you're absolutely right and and I think that it's a it is a live concern because through the energy transition not just in relation to to gas boilers that. Um, the, there are always going to be people who need extra help and support and extra protection and what we need to do and be better at as a country is understanding and figuring out how we use the data we have in order to properly identify and target help and support to those who need it the most. The reality is, is that people who are in fuel poverty um, or people who are really struggling to pay their bills uh, we need to do more to support them because actually it's you know energy is an essential service so there's something around first of all making sure that it's not those who can least afford it who end up being in that 20% the second is around how do we make sure we take a proper whole house approach to this sort of thing you know when we talked in the opening section about that sort of the, the next phase and the next step the, the reality is is that what we need to do to improve homes and businesses is that really tricky piece it's that how do we improve energy efficiency well you know i think we've all the the energy crisis of the last sort of 20 months or so has really highlighted the the the, the, the big mistake made when we cut the green crap in 2015 you know it's added 9.8 billion pounds to bills that's a problem um and everyone's paying what i think it's around 180 pounds extra on bills that um because of that because of that it's it's foolish to not invest in energy efficiency it's the cheapest form of energy it's the energy you don't use so energy efficiency and really considering how we improve homes this is one part of what we need to do the other part of what we need to do is decarbonize heat and we need to think quite carefully about how we do it and tony's touched on it that you know we're evidence-led i think that you know electrification could and should work for most homes but where it can't we should be thinking about the alternatives we should be thinking about customer comfort how, how people can use different systems what they mean what the cost is to put them in what the disruption is and what choice and control people have within their homes but let's not fool ourselves the longer we take to make these decisions the narrow those parameters of choice become so we have to be quite careful about thinking about that ahead of time so there's decarbonizing heat it's energy efficiency and then there's like the last bit which is the flex it's the demand flexibility it's about look you know we've got this abundance of clean power brilliant but First of all, can we actually get it connected so we can use it? Can we move it around efficiently um, so that people, so that businesses, so that homes can use it when it's um, cheapest and most plentiful on the grid? So there's these three different things that we need to do and we need to engage people with. Um, and the Prime Minister a couple of weeks ago, you know, he set out some of his thoughts on the net zero um, area. And that included the spatial plan, it included 50% extra on the... Um, Border upgrade scheme, really welcome. But he also talked about a public conversation. Um, and I think some of that, there's a lot of politics in that, and I'm not going to comment on that bit. But what I will say about the public conversation is absolutely right. 
bring it on. We should have that public conversation. Most people do want to do the things that they that we need to do but the, what they need is help support information advice you know knowing kind of what is the right thing for me my lifestyle my home my family what's at what point should i be doing these things and i feel like in this country we start these conversations climate assembly brilliant but then we've had covid we've had an energy crisis and we haven't continued the conversation and you know the cost of living crisis the affordability crisis the, the energy security challenges, we didn't have those four years ago. So the conversation needs to keep up and that conversation has to include real people. Excellent. Uh, thanks very much, Dara. Um, Josh, I, I wanted to come to you next, to come back to this question of uh, the power of the FSO and its role relative to government. I guess, you know, something we're very interested in at the Institute for Government is the relationship between regulators uh, and departments uh, or public bodies and departments. I guess there are a number of models out there for how uh, uh, confident they can be in pointing out the errors of government. You know, you've got the OBR or the Bank of England, which tend to be quite, I, I guess, coy relative to the CCC, for example. Yeah. What do you think is the appropriate role for the FSO? Um, in particular, when it has to make choices about trading off the objectives it's been given. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah I, I kind of, I, it's, it's a very good question. I think for me, it's a bit more Bank of England than it is CCC, if that makes sense. So effectively, the the institution, I think, will struggle if it becomes a purely advisory body, which is very public in its criticism of the government. Because let's be all be clear, in the next five to 10 years, we're gonna have a shed load of areas where the political ambition does not reflect the targets that have been set out and you as an organization will have a role in thinking about how that is resolved opposed to necessarily how the public debate on that works which others like the ccc can shape and evolve and um, the bank of england's model is much more we make our own decisions we do them independently and we advise government privately and obviously they're then doing stuff externally but those are usually related to their own decisions so the model i can see working for the fso is you have a set of areas where you are able to make decisions whether that's the strategic spatial plan for example that then Ofgem go away and deliver with the companies and you can make decisions in relation to that but then there'll be a set of things where you've got an advisory role take for example market reform locational marginal pricing everyone's favorite topic where actually your role is more advisory and therefore internal to government to help shape what are very difficult and complex decisions and it's that balancing act to ensure you create an organization that has the credibility to make decisions but also then has that deep expertise that it can flow into government in that right balancing act you described home that feels to me like the critical um, piece to get right the other thing i would say is and this is kind of definitely reflects the broader conversation you mentioned this earlier tony is it's in some ways less about the duties that are inherent within the organization it's about how you think about the relationship between government and the organization the link between the two so critically a kind of annual process by where the secretary of state sets out a very clear set of expectations on institutions will help and it will make sure those duties are refreshed and those trade-offs are guided rather than it just be to the leadership of the organization to make really difficult trade-off decisions acknowledging that a lot of those decisions are ultimately going to be political and that's what we never got right with Ofgem, where effectively government has slowly but surely shifted more and more responsibility onto the organization without actually making that clear and also giving them the sense of how they should approach the trade-off between net zero and cost because ultimately there is a trade-off in the short term not in the long term but in the short term there is you know, build a lot of stuff quite quickly and the more government can help the fso think that tr those trade-offs through will and 
improve the clarity in terms of the way the organization works, the better. And that to Nick's question, that will ensure as well that the investors and developers understand the organization and therefore able to act accordingly. Great. Tony. Yeah, just yeah, a couple, couple of reflections. So I, I like the, your comment with your question. You know, I've, I've spent a career trying to make regulation and policy making interesting and exciting, but guess what? It's outcomes and that matter to the people out there in the real world, not the mechanism. And they, they put a lot of stall in regulatory institutions getting these things right for you. So you're right to ask the questions of, are we going to be effective in in, in what what we're doing? I just wanted to come back to to your question because I think there's almost a little bit of a presumption that we're not going to need a gas grid and we need to start thinking about and you use the word decommissioning and I I think it's just very premature because I think you know perhaps we, we're also trying to rush this decision about heating. We've got to decide this binary choice now. I don't think time is our kind of enemy on these things and that's not to be complacent because we have to deliver the net zero targets so we've got to get we've got to get on with decarbonizing heat but i just want to give you a few kind of quick facts and you know why we shouldn't be thinking of let's rush to kind of think about decommissioning first of all a lot of the long-term scenarios be they from the eso or uh, the ccc do show hydrogen featuring in those long-term scenarios that's not a wholly electrified system second fact is when we've looked at uh, our industrial and customer base 80 percent of industrial and commercial customers sit not on the big transmission pipes but on the local and medium pressure pipes so they're embedded in the system and they are not going to get decarbonized wholly by electrification so there's going to be a need a grid for some kind third point is really critical one kind of um it's not uh, out there publicly but the numbers suggest that it's going to cost more to decommission the gas network than it is to repurpose it. That's because we spent billions over the last 20 years investing in a new pipe network to replace the old iron, iron main. So we've got a network there that's ready to be used. Now, none of that is to say we should keep using gas forever, but we're going to have a gas network for a period of time. And who knows you know, as and when it might trans transfer into, into hydrogen. And then I guess the fourth data point is yeah, if, if the solution is going to be uh, electrifying a lot of heat, then let's see the uptake of heat pumps that people keep promising because it hasn't happened yet. It's good to see the government uh, increasing uh, the level of subsidy, but let's, let's just see because we've had, heard promises about the price coming down and the uptake going up, but we've got to wait and see. And I would say, you know, the U everyone seems to go, well, why can't the UK be like the rest of Europe? Well, we've got a very different heating system in this country and Dara point, put, point a finger at it. We've got a big challenge in terms of the insulation and the thermal properties of our housing stock because it's pretty poor when you compare it to the rest of Europe. So we've got some big challenges there. I'll stop there. Great, thank you. Uh, I think I was going to take one more question unless any panelists have to run off to something and blame the overrun on the late start rather than my <laughs> chairing. Um, so if we could take one of these two over here, please, Lauren. Um, Thanks so much. Um, I'm Richard Evans from uh, NGO Core Transport and Environment. I should probably be asking about future hydrogen needs for aviation and shipping, but actually I was just interested in what Tony was saying. Uh, how does the FSO deal with the relationship with the gas network, where the gas network is trying to find a future for itself, where perhaps it doesn't rationally have a future? How does the, net, the FSO deal with having to work with you and absolutely your key stakeholder 
but it also will be taking decisions or having a view yeah. that does not actually act in the interests of your uh, your business model or your profitability. Great. Tony, if you could just t take that question and any closing remarks, and we'll go we'll go round if uh, everyone could keep it to one or one or two minutes. You'll be pleased to know that um, if this is not the first time I've met Cole. So, you know, so uh, Cole has initiated quite a lot of discussion with the gas networks, which is to be applauded in the sense of trying to understand that interface. I think, you know, Cole can speak for his own um, organisation, but it starts, as he said, at that transmission level. So understanding that. And I think we've pointed out the difficulties as you go further down in terms of the local networks where those decision points are going to be is it going to be the fso's involvement in the local area planning or is it going to be a different institutional front so i think i think there's more to come and that's that's the kind of thing that we've got to wrestle down uh, in the next period of time to get to, to get right i think just in terms of closing remarks i mean i think you know probably one last thought in all of this you know probably that i've 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 uh, talked hard about is in whatever institutional framework design we come up with going back to your point we've got to think about the end consumer and i think for domestic heating choice their role in defining the outcome is going to be super important great thanks josh yeah thanks i mean i, I kind of did two final thoughts because i was going to make the same consumer point so i won't make that i think kind of for me what's come through is the fact that we shouldn't let politicians off the hook the fso is a really important organization there are a set of big political decisions, whether it's on the future of the gas grid, the future of how consumers eat their homes, which ultimately are politically driven. So the FSO is one contributor to that, and we all should kind of focus our guns at the end of the table. We should actually continue to focus on politicians making big decisions. <laughs> the other thing is just the wider reform. So it's kind of the regulatory reforms that need to happen, the questions around local as well as regional system planning. All of those things matter enormously for the success of the FSO to actually work and drive change. So the more we can be focusing on those alongside the progression of the FSO as it develops, over the next couple of years the better great thanks josh next um so i, I guess if it's oh, so hard to go after people who all say the right thing <laughs> um, okay so 27 years we've got 27 years to deliver this industrial revolution most industrial revolutions you know to get to net zero mostly they take sort of over 50 years we don't have a lot of time so i yeah. think it's about being careful and being thoughtful the public do overwhelmingly back net zero and so for us the main takeaway from that is that as an industry we need to work with government and the regulator and all of the other kind of governance um, bodies across the system to make sure that everything's done in the best interest of consumers excellent thanks very much Dara and final word to you Cole um, <laughs> where do you go um, there's no silver bullets um, that's the FSO cannot be the answer to every every problem and that's the wrong answer right if it was for me and the team to go away in a dark room and come back with a you know, tablets of stone for everybody else to go and kind of deliver that's that's the wrong answer we have to create an uh, an environment where we can collaborate and and, and co-create and, and come up with solutions together because it is a challenge of a generation and it's gonna need all of us to put our resources minds to to solve that problem and um, right now I, i'm everybody's friend because i've not upset anybody yet there, there, <laughs> there, there will be there will be a point though where the fso is going to have to yeah. make some hard trade-offs and you know it's it's you know, just remember this moment you wanted this you wanted <laughs> you wanted an expert independent impartial organization who could help us answer the big tough questions you know government still has a critical role they will set policy we're there to advise and we'll do our best to um, to deliver this not just for ourselves but you know for everybody who's going to come after us great
Hope you join me in thanking the panel. Uh, enjoy the rest of your day. We will have an audio recording on the IFG website, just to let you know. Um, and thanks again to Caden. Enjoy the rest of the conference.